Well, perhaps there is uh, no part of the book of Revelation that has caused so much intrigue or that has generated more questions than the chapter that we're turning to today, chapter 13. And specifically those parts of chapter 13 which deal with uh, this mysterious thing that we call the mark of the beast. Uh, Look with me, if you will, in chapter number 13, uh, down at the end of the chapter, just to see these verses to begin with. Look at verse number 16, 17, and 18. Those verses say, And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell unless he has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here's wisdom, let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six, or 666, or of course, as we often refer to it, uh, 666. So with that introduction, let me welcome you into uh, week number six, timely, isn't it? Week number six of our study uh, through the book of Revelation. As many of you know, uh, we are seeking to understand the 22 chapters, the entirety of the book of Revelation by understanding the eight key prophetic events that are recorded um, in this book. And we've come a long way over the last five weeks. We only have a few weeks remaining. And since we are six weeks into this uh, series, let me go back and sort of state something that I uh, said at the beginning of our teaching series, which I think bears repeating. And it's simply to say that While at Brookstone, we understand that godly people approach the matters of the book of Revelation, the issue of eschatology, the study of end times and how God will bring this world as we know it to a conclusion. While godly people take different approaches to interpreting these passages and view these things a bit differently, at Brookstone, we believe that a premillennial view of what the Bible says about the end of the age is the truest reading of the text. And so as I said to you in the beginning of our study six weeks ago, we approach the book of Revelation with a premillennial view of end times. Now for some of you, you're thinking, well, I don't even know what premillennial means. I don't really care. I mean, how does that really affect my life? But it is It is important to your understanding of Scripture. So let me just take a minute and give you some definitions. Maybe you'll jot some of these things down. When we talk about a premillennial view of Scripture, here's what we mean. Premillennial means that there is a coming millennial kingdom. So premillennial means we are pre the millennial In other words, the millennial kingdom, which is promised in Revelation 20, is not past, it is not current, it is future. It is coming in the future. Revelation 20, let me just turn there quickly and remind you of what it says. Verse number 2, there's coming a time where the devil will be bound for a thousand years. Verse number 3, he will be cast into a bottomless pit for a thousand years. 
Uh, verse number six talks about the thousand years. Verse number seven talks about the thousand years. So, so Revelation 20 talks about this period of time of 1,000 years, a millennium. And we approach Scripture believing that that period of time discussed in Revelation has not yet come to pass. It's future. And we believe that that's the truest reading of the text for a number of different reasons, not the least of which would be that Revelation 19 talks about the return of Jesus Christ in great glory. Would you agree with me? Revelation 19 is future. If you think so, say amen. Has Jesus come in great glory yet in his second coming? No, that's future. And then Revelation 21 and 22 talk about eternity with God in a celestial city. Is that yet future? Yeah, that's yet future. So if chapter 19 is in the future and chapters 21 and 22 are in the future, then it's a pretty good reading of the text to assume that chapter 20 would be in the future as well. Now, that's not the only reason we believe that, but that's a, that's a, a good snapshot of one reason why. Premillennial means that there is a coming millennial kingdom. That's important. The second thing I would say to you is that this view of Scripture, this premillennial view of Scripture, means that we believe that there is a future for Israel. There is still a future for Israel. And I don't just mean in the sense that there's a future for the United States as well or a future for Spain. What I mean to say is that there are promises that God has made to Israel regarding their restoration, the restoring of the kingdom of Israel. These messianic promises of one day the Messiah coming in Israel being restored. And we believe those promises remain in effect today and that they will in fact be fulfilled one day when Jesus the Messiah comes again. Folks who view the book of Revelation differently would say, well, those promises to Israel have been canceled and they have been fulfilled in the church, that we are receiving the promises of Israel now being fulfilled. That's called replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel. We don't believe that. We believe that there is still a future for Israel. That's a second important fact about how we view Scripture. A third thing that we would say is true, and, and we've already talked about this, so I'll just mention it in passing, but it is that we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Pre-tribulation rapture, that is that there will be a mass evacuation of the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, that we will be taken out of the world in a rapture, called away suddenly, you know this word, the rapture, that we will be called out suddenly and that that tribulation or that that rapture will occur before the beginning of the tribulation period. So a premillennial view of Scripture, there is a future for Israel, and we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And then just to make sure you understand the, the word tribulation, uh, when we talk about tribulation in terms of, of eschatology, in terms of the end of the age, uh, the word tribulation describes a period of time, which is a seven-year uh, period of worldwide tribulation just before the second coming of Jesus. And you'll find that that season described in Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter number 18, okay? So again, all of that is a bit of review, but it's just to make sure that we keep coming back to our, our understanding of how we rightly interpret what the Bible says about these uh, end time events. 
Now, by the way, speaking of the tribulation period, we've spent some time talking about this seven-year period, and we've learned a couple of important things about it. One, we've learned that the tribulation period is the time of God's wrath. And so these are the seven years in which God is pouring out his wrath, his judgment upon the rebellion of mankind, upon the kingdoms of this world, um, and breaking the kingdoms of this world in preparation for the kingdom of Jesus to come. In fact, Daniel describes this, I believe in chapter number two, how that in the days of these kingdoms, these final kingdoms, that God will establish his kingdom. Just prior to that, the tribulation will break the kingdoms of this earth. But it's not only a time of the wrath of God. Uh, we've learned it's also a time of great salvation because God will raise up a witness and the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the tribulation period. And many, many people, primarily Jewish people, I believe, but many, many uh, people will come to faith in Jesus. Uh, we're going to talk about this a little bit more today as we think about this, this antichrist who will be ruling in the world during the time of tribulation. We're going to read a little bit more about him today. Let's read Revelation 13, beginning in verse number um, 11. Now, if y'all didn't check out during the review, shout amen. Okay, so if your neighbors checked out, rein them back in. Just poke them right quickly, and, uh, and we're going to get going. Revelation 13, verse number 11. So verse 11 says, And I beheld another beast... This would be uh, in contrast to the beast that he saw in chapter 13, verse 1, uh, which we talked about a number of weeks ago. He said, I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. And this beast had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke as a dragon. And he exercises all of the power of the first beast before him. And he causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives them that dwell on the earth by means of those miracles which he had the power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto that image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand and in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save he that has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And this number, as we read a moment ago, is 603 score and six. Let's talk about it. So begin in your notes, if you would, by jotting down that this passage gives us some insight into the coming new world order. Jot that down, if you will. The coming New World Order. Now, while you're writing that down, let me just go ahead and acknowledge that I recognize that even by my using that phrase, the New World Order, that that might make me sound like a paranoid right-wing conspiracy theorist, all right? 
uh, this idea in our day, in popular culture, uh, and by the way, this is not even that recent. This would be over the last hundred years or so. This concept of a new world order has become associated with uh, some group of ultra-wealthy, uh, kind of an Illuminati, if you will, uh, a group of ultra-wealthy ultra people who control the world banks and they control world governments and they, they in the shadows, control the world. And, and uh, you know, preppers love to talk about the new world order that's coming and we need to get ready and let's get uh, beans and guns and hide in the mountains somewhere, you know. Uh, can we just agree together? I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and I'm not even a prepper. And uh, I know some of you who are. If things get bad, I'm coming to your house. But anyway, I, when I talk about a new world order, I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about that. Can, listen, the Bible, Scripture, knows nothing of that kind of thing. The Bible is not a book of conspiracies. The Bible is a book of past, present, and prophetic or future facts. And what the facts of the Bible tell us is that during the days of the tribulation, the arrangement, the order of nations and kings and religion and finance will in fact be different than it is today. That during the days of the tribulation, there will in fact be a new order in the world, or a new world order. That means, according to scripture, that during the days of the tribulation, there will be a one world government. That this, this world will have all of its authority and all of its uh, um, political power invested in one central Source. We've studied this in the past, uh, past few weeks, how the Bible says that this Antichrist, who will be satanically inspired and empowered, that he will have authority over the whole world. Look at Revelation 13 and verse number 7. Here you'll see this. Verse 7, in the middle of the verse says, and power, and the word means authority. So you can read it that way. And authority, or political power, was given to the Antichrist over all, everybody say the word all, all kindreds, tongues, and nations. Now you'll notice that it says in verse number seven that this power, this authority was given to him. It doesn't say that he just took it or that somehow he wrestled it away, although I think that will happen as well. But the point of the verse is to say that God is giving to him, that God is, is allowing him to have all power or all authority in the world. Scripture talks about this so many times, and uh, you can go later and read the book of Daniel chapter 7. We don't have time to turn this morning, but Daniel chapter 7 describes this final empire. Scripture says he will have all authority in all the world, uh, that governments will yield to him, and that he will reign. And... Um, and so there will be a one world government. Now, the second thing that will happen during the tribulation in terms of this new ordering of the world is that there will be a one world religion. So one world government, political authority centered in one government, one man, if you will, and then religion 
centered there as well. Look at chapter 13, verse number 3. It says, I saw one of the heads as it was wounded unto death, one of the heads of this beast, wounded unto death, and his deadly wound was healed. Watch verse 3. And all the world wondered after the beast. Verse number 4. And they worshiped, that is, all the world worshiped the dragon. That's Satan, we learned last week. That's the devil. They worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they, or all the world, worshiped the beast saying, who is like unto the beast and who is able to make war with him? Look at verse number eight. And all, everybody say the word all. All that dwell upon the earth, that's the the whole world, all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Now there is a caveat. There are some who will not worship him. Who are they? Those whose names are written in the book of life will not worship, but those whose names are, verse eight says, not written in the book of life, slain from the foundation of the world, they will worship him. So what he says in verses number three and four in verse number eight is that during the days of the tribulation, there will be this growing, this growing admiration of, this globally increasing attraction to, infatuation with, even worship of, This leader, this beast, described in the first part of chapter number 13. This beast will be adored by the entire world. And verse number 8 says, For every person on the planet in those days whose names are not written in the book of life, that is, those who are not being saved during those days, they will have this growing attraction to and this growing worship of him. So watch this. People's adoration will begin to leave whatever it is or whomever it is they have been worshiping and their their adoration and worship will begin to be attracted to this one uh, false god or this one leader, this beast described in chapter 13. Now, by the way, let me just stop for a second and speak to this because this should not surprise us because even today, there is an increasing unity or unifying that's happening among religions. Uh, You may be aware that it was earlier in 2019, in fact, it was in February of 2019 in Abu Dhabi, that there was an historic meeting that occurred between Pope Francis of the Catholic Church and um, the leading Sunni Muslim cleric uh, in, the, in the world of Sunni Islam, these two religious leaders, one from uh, Christianity or Christendom and the other from Islam, came together, signed a document uh, in which they stated that both Christianity and Islam serve the same God. So that, if you're listening, say amen. Amen. So that they said that Jehovah, the God of the Bible, and Allah, the God of the Quran or the God of Islam, are the same God. That was their declaration. Now let me be quick to say that is not true. They are not the same God. But this is what they said, same God. They then said and agreed together that as brothers, 
that Christians and Muslims are brothers under the same God, that we operate in our individual faiths under the will of God, that the multiple faiths are the will and the design of God to bring us together in worshiping the same God. It was an historic declaration in the world of Catholicism and Sunni uh, Islam. The point is, it is a it is a shining example of what will happen during the days of the tribulation when those individual faiths and creeds will melt away and people will begin to worship this one uh, ruler or leader, the Antichrist. Now, the attraction is going to be very normal, very natural as this one comes to power. The world's attraction will be drawn to him. But then watch what happens in verse 11. As, as the world's hearts are being drawn to worship him, now verse 11 says there will be another beast that will rise up. He will rise up alongside the first beast. Uh, this beast has two horns like a lamb. Uh, that is that he, uh, he presents very gently, very humbly. He presents as a lamb, as one of peace. And yet, uh, his character is belied by his voice. When he speaks, he speaks like a dragon. Verse 12 tells us that he is a deceiver. And he will exercise all of the power of the first beast before him. And he causes all the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the beast, the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. He does great wonders. Verse 13 says, so that he makes fire to come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Verse 14, and he deceives. This is what he does. This is his occupation. He deceives. Even though he presents as a man of truth, he presents as a lamb, yet he deceives, verse 14, them that dwell on the earth by means of those miracles which he had the power to do. And he deceives the whole world into worshiping the beast. Write it down this way. This is the false prophet, and this false prophet deceives the entire world. And by the way, the name or the designation or the title, the false prophet, that's not my designation. He is so called uh, more than one time in the book of Revelation. Um, in fact, the Bible tells us this. Go to Revelation 16, just turn one page. Chapter 16 and verse number 13. It says, and I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, that's the devil, out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. That's, that's the one being described in chapter 13, verse number 11. Look at Revelation 19 and verse number 20. You'll see him called this again. Revelation 19, 20. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. And then again in Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 10. And the devil that de uh, deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. Th three, four different times the book of Revelation gives this designation to the beast that arises in chapter 13 verse 11. He is the false prophet. Now, by the way, do you notice... A Trinitarian um, uh, set of rulers during the tribulation. 
you've got the dragon, whom we learned last week is the devil, Satan. Um, and then you've got the Antichrist or the beast. And then you've got the false prophet. Now, we've learned, haven't we, that everything that God does beautifully and wonderfully, Satan counterfeits, right? And so we know that God exists as a Trinitarian God. We worship one God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God manifest in three persons. He is a, he is a, a Trinitarian God. And so God uh, directs, if you will, God oversees. Uh, and in the, in the satanic trinity, this is what the dragon does. And then God the Son, Jesus, is our Savior. He came to bring salvation, to rescue us. In the, trini in the satanic trinity, this is what the beast does. He's come to rescue the world during the tribulation. In the divine trinity, the Holy Spirit draws us to Jesus, points us to worship, gives us faith and enables us to worship Jesus. In the satanic trinity, the false prophet points people to the beast and calls them to worship the beast. Everything that God does beautifully and right, Satan counterfeits. And what you have in Revelation is this unholy or this satanic trinity. So the false prophet rises during these early days to the midpoint of the tribulation and he begins to lead the world to worship the Antichrist. Now, how does he do it? How does he lead or deceive the whole world to worship the beast? Let me, let me tell you two ways that he does it. Now, the first one uh, may sound shocking to you, but the first way in which he promotes the worship of the Antichrist is by literally, I believe, raising the Antichrist from the dead. That literally, during the days of the tribulation, the Antichrist will suffer a wound, perhaps an assassination, and that he will die, or at the very least will appear to be dead, and, and the world will believe that he's dead. And yet, by the power of the, of the beast, the, the uh, false prophet, uh, he will be raised. Now, does the Bible tell us this? Sure it does. Look at Revelation chapter 13, it says it three times in this chapter. Revelation chapter 13, verse 3, verse 12, verse 14. Verse 3 says, And I saw one of the heads, this is one of the heads of that last empire, as it were, wounded unto death, and his deadly wound was healed. He was wounded unto death, and his deadly wound was healed. And as a result of that, all the world wondered after him. Look at verse number 12. And he, he uh, that is the false prophet, exercises all of the power of the Antichrist or the first beast before him. And he, the false prophet, causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, the Antichrist, whose deadly wound was healed. And then look at verse number 14. He deceives them that dwell on the earth by means of the miracles which he had the power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that, they that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast... Uh, which had the wound by a sword. Again, it implies an assassination. He had the wound by a sword and did live. Now, some people say this is not an actual human being raised. This is the empire, the revived Roman Empire. I don't think so. I, mean, I do believe and agree that the Roman Empire will be revived in the last days. And in fact, we think we're seeing that today. But 
this speaks clearly to me of a man, of the leader of that empire. And the resurrection that will occur will in fact be to counterfeit, to mimic in the same way that the unholy trinity mimics the holy trinity, the resurrection of the false Christ, the antichrist, will be to mimic the resurrection of the true Christ. If Jesus Christ can rise from the dead, then this antichrist will, if not literally, will appear at the very least to rise from the dead. There is some question, does Satan have the ability to give life? And certainly I think scripture would indicate he doesn't. So one of two things has to happen. Either God allows it in this one case for this purpose, or there is such a perception that he's dead and and he is believed to have risen from the dead. Now, I would also say to you that this would be a necessary show of his power because chapter 11, verse 11 tells us that the two prophets who have been preaching at the temple for three and a half years are murdered and then they rise from the dead. These who have been preaching the truth are raised from the dead and it would be necessary for Satan to propagate his lie, in fact, to show the beast rising from the dead. Imagine, imagine if you're three and a half years into the tribulation period, the world is in chaos, the the, the world is, has, has literally is, is uh, uh, convulsing with all of the, of the tribulation events going on. There's war everywhere. Now your leader has brought some semblance of peace. Now you're beginning to worship him. Now you're being drawn to worship him, and suddenly he's killed. Imagine what it would be like, the grief and the despair that would cover the entire population of the world if in that moment the leader of the world were to die. But then, if he were to then rise from the dead, oh, how the world in such deception would follow him and would worship him. Now, in just a second, I'm going to show you a picture. And before before we put the picture up, I want to tell you that I am simply showing you this picture for illustrative purposes, okay? I am making no implications or inferring nothing about, about either the man or the church, okay? So here's the picture. Uh, and this picture is from 2006 at the funeral of Pope John Paul II. Now, John Paul was the leader of a billion Catholics, one billion Catholics around the world. And when he died in uh, 2005 or 2006, the world came together. Virtually every nation came together to pay respect to him. And I show this picture because what you have are three U.S. presidents. The current president at that time, George W. Bush, his dad, H.W., his predecessor, Bill Clinton, uh, Condoleezza Rice. You have the representation of the United States government kneeling and paying respect and grieving the loss of the religious leader of one billion people. What you don't see in this picture is that before and after the U.S. delegation passed and knelt in paying their respects, the, the, the Queen of England and the, and the princes of England and the prime ministers and presidents and prime ministers from around the world, literally the leaders of virtually every nation of the world came and knelt before the leader of one billion people. Now imagine a day when you would have the leader of the world, of seven billion people. 
the hope of the entire world. And he is lying assassinated and the world is kneeling in despair and respect and distress and grief and suddenly he were to reanimate, he were to come alive, the world would worship him like you cannot even believe. The Bible says three times in chapter number 13 that he has a deadly wound and yet that wound is healed. I believe this resurrection or this supposed resurrection will in fact cause the deception. Now, the second thing, though, that the false prophet will use to deceive the world is found in verses 13 and 14, and that's simply the miracles that he will do. The false prophet will perform miracles, uh, and he will do great wonders so that he makes fire to come down from heaven uh, on the earth in the sight of men, and he deceives those that dwell in the earth by the means of those miracles which he does. When they see these miracles occurring, if miracles can be done, surely this man is of God and we must believe what he says. This will be the the logic or the thinking of the world. Now, by the way, notice what verses 13, 14, and 15 tell us. Verse 14 specifically says that the false prophet will say to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image or a statue to the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live. Now, this is not new news. I mean, governments, uh, dictators have been doing this around the world for, for you know, centuries where we have, a, we have a leader, we respect our, our president or our, or our emperor or our dictator, whomever, and so a statue is made. Now, here's what's different about this statue in that day. This statue will be placed, I believe, in the temple, the reconstructed third temple that will be in Jerusalem. And the Bible goes on to say, look at it, The Bible goes on to say, verse number 15, that after this statue is made, that the false prophet will have power to give life unto that statue of the beast. So that the image of the statue of the beast should speak. Now, I don't don't pretend to know how that happens. But the Bible says that this statue standing and and being that uh, object of worship or icon of worship will in fact have the ability to speak. And then... Standing in that holy place in the, in the temple, all the world will be required to declare that he is God and to bow down and worship him. This will be the worship of the one world religion. Now, I should tell you, by the way, that, that I'm convinced that this event, both the Antichrist himself going into the temple and then in his absence, that statue being in the, in the place in the temple, that this is the abomination of desolation and that many Jewish people will flee, as Matthew 24 says, Jesus warned them to do. They will flee during that day and run for their lives and they will refuse to bow down and worship this beast. And as a result of that, they will be hunted and Jesus warned that they would even be killed. Now, this is not new, I should tell you, for the Jewish people. They've seen this before. Uh, in fact, hold your finger in Revelation. If y'all are doing okay, shout amen. amen. Okay, hold your finger in Revelation. Go all the way back to the book of Daniel. We'll come back to Revelation and close in a minute. Go to Daniel chapter number three because uh, the Jewish people have seen this before. A dictator uh, who wanted to be worshiped and so an image was made uh, and they were required to bow down to it. Daniel chapter number three, verse one. Speaking of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the king made an image or a statue of gold 
whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof uh, uh, six cubits. And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes and the governors and the captains and judges and treasurers and counselors and sheriffs and the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Verse 3, they all came there. Verse 4, then a herald cried aloud and said to you, it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sack, uh, harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, that you fall down and worship the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. And whoso falleth not down and worship shall that same hour be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Well, you know this passage, right? This, this is the, the, the wonderful Bible story of the three Hebrew children who wouldn't bow, they wouldn't bend, they wouldn't burn, right? And so they were uh, cast into the burning fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, you got them, and Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and they're cast into the burning fiery furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace, sees them walking around unharmed. And do you remember what he says? He says, there's a fourth man walking in the fire with... If y'all believe your Bible, say amen. amen. There's a fourth man walking in the fire with them, and they don't have any... They're not harmed. Their hair's not singed. They came out. They didn't even smell like smoke. And there's, a, by the way, a wonderful... I believe a wonderful prophetic message in that to the Jewish people, which... which looks forward, it foreshadows this time in the future when they will refuse to bow to this statue to the Antichrist and they will be hunted and they will be uh, persecuted and yet their Messiah, Jesus, will guard, as we learned last week or two weeks ago, and protect them uh, and will ultimately come to rescue them. The point is that he will perform miracles and he will command that they will worship. There'll be one world government and then one world religion. Thirdly, and the final part of this uh, new world order is that there will be a one world economy. In the days of the tribulation, a one world economy. Now, this shouldn't surprise us at all. We're nearly living in that day to day. I know we have different currencies, but we truly are living in a one world economy. That's the reason there can be an event that happens on the other side of the world while you're sleeping and you wake up in the morning and you're 401k has gone down by 20% because we have a global economy. One thing that happens here affects everything that happens everywhere else in the world. So there will be a one world economy. Look at verses 16 and 17. Again, I'm, I'm back in Revelation 13. Or I'm not yet, but I'm going there. Revelation 13, verse number 16. And he, the false prophet, will cause all people, everybody say all all people, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, no matter who you are, every person in the world in that day will be caused, they will be forced, they will be required to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead. The word mark literally translated means an engraving or a stamp. Now, I don't pretend to know exactly what that looks like. The, the Bible doesn't give us any more information about what it will look like than this. It will be a mark that will be received in the hand or in the forehead. And by the way, many people over the years have tried to say, well, this is the mark of the beast, or that is the mark of the beast. There are some who say the fact that you're here worshiping on a Sunday morning instead of on the Sabbath, that our gathering is in fact the mark of the beast. 
If the Bible says what it means, it means what it says, right? And so the Bible says that, that all the people in that day during the tribulation will be required to receive a mark, a stamp in their forehead, uh, forehead or in their right hand. Now, it could be a, an actual visible mark. It could be an implant. Uh, again, I don't know this for sure, but certainly the technology exists today. Without question, the technology exists today that micro, microchip implants can be implanted. They are not visible at all. They're not felt at all. And yet they have the ability to carry so much information and to be a mark of identification. In fact, there was a news report out not too many months ago that in Sweden, thousands of people are already doing this in Sweden where they are being uh, implanted with a microchip and that microchip allows them to get into their vehicles, to get into their cars. I now, many of you have the same, when I go to my car, I don't have a key, I turn, have an electronic. When I walk up to my car, I don't even have to take it out of my pocket. I walk up to my car, it goes beep, beep, and it unlocks. Uh, when I get in, I don't have to put a key in and turn, I just push a button and it, and it starts. And if I walk away from my running car, electronically it knows that, that, that uh, chip is no longer present, it'll shut the car off. We know this technology exists. I mean, listen, I went and got a cup of coffee and some baked oatmeal in our coffee shop this morning. I highly recommend the baked oatmeal, by the way. And, and when I, they told me how much it cost. And I, so I went to pay. I didn't pull money out of my pocket. I didn't pull a credit card out of my pocket. I simply swiped my phone near a reader. Didn't touch anything. It was just and electronically. It, it went beep, beep. And about 60 seconds later, I got a little notification on my phone that said $7 charged. Uh, Amazon has now started. They've launched out in, I believe, Seattle, a new sort of grocery store called Grab and Go, where shoppers have the ability to go into a store. They never see a cashier. They never go by a register. They simply take from the shelves what they need. And as they leave the store, their accounts are automatically debited because the store knows what they've taken out of there. I'm simply saying the technology exists today for this to be. We put, we put locator chips in our puppies. How easy would it be to sell to the world? Let's put locator chips in our babies. No more lost babies, no more amber alerts, no more having to search for abducted children. We can find them instantaneously because we know where they are. The technology exists today. And he says that this will be a mark of some sort which will enforce. And whatever it looks like, this is what it is. It is an enforcement tool to enforce not the economy, to enforce the worship of the beast. Because everyone who is a worshiper of the beast will take that mark. Their allegiance will be identified by their receiving of the mark. He says it very plainly in verse number 16 and 17. No man may buy or sell unless he has the mark of the beast or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Imagine in that day, you can't buy groceries. Literally, you cannot walk into a grocery store and buy a gallon of milk if you have not received the mark. That's what, it's exactly what verse 17 says. That you cannot go into CVS and get your diabetes drugs, your insulin, unless you receive the mark. You cannot 
put your sick child in a hospital to get care unless they're not asking for your insurance card, they're asking for the mark of the beast. You cannot buy fuel. You cannot heat your home. You cannot access your bank accounts. You cannot access your credit accounts. You cannot participate in any commerce unless you receive the mark. This is what verse number 17 says. No man might buy or sell unless he has the mark. It is an enforcement tool. Here's the prophetic point. I haven't even mentioned your book. I see many of you have them with you, your handbook. The prophetic point to know is this, that in the last days, one religion will dominate the earth under the leadership of the false prophet. And allegiance to this satanic faith will be enforced by the mark of the beast. In the last days, during the tribulation, there will be one religion. All will be compelled to comply and to worship in that faith. And their allegiance will be noted by their receiving the mark or not. And those who refuse to receive it, well, we know what happens to them. The Bible is clear. So, so these are the things the Bible says that are coming to the world during the days of tribulation under the, the leadership and the deception of the false prophet. All of which is intriguing and all of which uh, we need to know about and we want to rescue our friends and family members from by leading them to faith in Christ. But there might be some of us who would say, well, this doesn't really apply to me, right? Because the rapture is going to happen and we're not going to be here for any of that. And, and so how does this even apply to me? Well, there, there, there are some points of application that we can draw from this. And so let's do that as we close by talking about evidences of a false faith. What are the evidences of a false faith? You know, every person in the world during the days of the tribulation, every person in the world who follows the false prophet's deception and bows down and worships the beast and receives a mark in their forehead or in their hand and they worship him, every one of them will incur the wrath of Almighty God. This is what the Bible says. In fact, you're in Revelation 13. Look at chapter 14, verse 9. Revelation 14, verse 9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worships the beast and his image and receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand. Now stop right there. What, it, it says, anybody who does this, verse 10, that one or the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into, the, into his cup of indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and forever, and they have no rest day or night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receives the mark of his name. Now, this is the tragic end. This is the tragic end of those who are deceived and have a false faith, who with with great intentionality, and I'm convinced who with, in many cases during the tribulation, with great belief that they're worshiping the right thing when they worship the Antichrist. Now sure, some will take the mark and worship as a matter of expediency. I don't want to die, so give me the mark. But they will, either from necessity or with sincerity, they will worship the beast. And yet it will be a false worship. And verse number 9, 10, and 11 of chapter 14 tell us that 
as a result of that false worship, of believing the lies, of following the miracles of the false prophet, that they will in fact suffer the wrath of God. In fact, I, I failed to give this to you earlier. Why don't you go ahead and write it down? Your focus factor, just to know this is coming. Satan has a limited ability to perform miracles. He does. We see this through the scripture. Limited ability to perform miracles. And he will use this power to deceive the entire world. And while we're not in danger today of, of being deceived and receiving the mark of the beast, that, that's not a concern today. I would say to you that if you are deceived, if you have a false faith, then all of the wrath of God described in this passage will in fact be yours as, as well. You can incur the wrath of Almighty God for placing your faith in something, in anything, other than his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to hear me. If y'all are listening, shout amen real loud. Amen. Listen, listen. You, you may say, Pastor, I, I don't even, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure I even want to think about a God who would send somebody to hell. I mean, you talk about hell and, and eternal damnation and torment and, and the wrath of God never being satisfied. It never ends in, in all eternity. I can't even believe in a God like that, you might say. Well, let me suggest something to you. The same Bible that tells you of the grace of God speaks just as plainly of the wrath of God. And the same Bible that proclaims that God will forgive our great sin never shrinks back from telling us of the severity of sin. And if there is no wrath of God, then nobody needs to be saved in the first place. If there's no such thing as judgment, well, isn't this what the scripture says? If there's no such thing as judgment, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. If there's no judgment, if there's no God, if there's no wrath, you have nothing to worry about. But if there is a God who judges our sin, then you need his mercy because his wrath is surely just as real. And this false faith will lead these to that wrath. And it will lead countless others in our day who have a false faith to wrath as well. How do we know? What are the evidences of a false faith? Write them down quickly. I'm going to move fast. Number one, false faith is focused on the wrong object. False faith worships the wrong thing. Look at chapter number 13 and verse number 12. These who incurred the wrath of God, they are worshipers. They have a faith. It's just in the wrong thing. Verse 12 says he exercises, the false product, uh, prophet exercises all the power of the first beast before him and he causes all the people in the earth to worship the first beast, to worship the Antichrist. Their faith is real, it's just wrong. Their faith may be very sincere, but it is sincerely wrong. It is on the wrong. It is focused on the wrong object. Let me be clear. Jesus and Jesus alone is the worthy object of worship from every person who draws the breath of life. Jesus alone. And anything that we worship, any faith that we have, faith in our own works, faith in our religious affiliation, faith in some other religious path, these will ultimately lead us uh, into, the, into the wrath of God. 
Secondly, false faith is based on the wrong evidence. This is what we discovered in verses 13 and 14 when they worshiped this beast because of the miracles they saw the false prophet do, not because of the character of the beast. Remember, he's a dragon. His character is clear. He's a man of great brutality. There's nothing about his character that would draw them to worship. It is only the sleight of hand, the miracles that this false prophet performs that pulls the wool over their eyes. And this is the reason that when you think about what or who is it that I worship, you should base your worship on one truth and one truth only. It is the objective, unchanging anvil of the word of God that never changes. And this Bible will lift high to you the name of Jesus Christ and call you to worship him. This is where we, where we found our faith. It is what the foundation of our faith is. I worship Jesus because the Bible tells me to worship Jesus. Like that song we used to sing when we were children, Jesus loves me, this I know. How do I know? For the Bible tells me so. I worship Jesus not because my mother did or, or does or my dad did or not because my grandfather was a preacher, not because I, I went to church, but I worship Jesus because this book tells me that there is a name above every name and that the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord. Because this Bible says there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. It's founded on the right things. True faith is. False faith has the wrong foundation, the wrong evidence. Not miracles, not what people do, but what the Word of God says. Number three, false faith may be embraced by the majority of people. In other words, don't believe that you're right just because most of your friends say the same thing. You know, Jesus warned about this, didn't he? He said there's a, there's a wide gate that leads to destruction. There's a narrow gate that leads to life. More people are headed to destruction than are headed to life. And in the days of the tribulation, we've seen it. Most everyone in the world will be worshiping this false Christ. And then false faith, number four, eventually leads to death. This is verse number 15. He had the power to give, un, give life unto the image of the beast and that the image of the beast should both speak and he will cause as many as would not worship the beast uh, that they should be killed. And yet, while those who refused to worship were killed in this life, chapter 14, verses 9, 10, 11 tell us that those who do worship the beast, who have false faith, will ultimately die eternally. If you have a false faith, if you worship anything other than Jesus, then I want to say to you it's a false faith. And there's but one way to come to eternal life, and that's through Jesus Christ. And so, loved ones, hear me. There is coming a day when a beast will rise to power and another beast will rise alongside of him. And this second beast, the false prophet, will take the already emerging and growing adoration and, and admiration of the world and will parlay that through miracles and, a, and at least a supposed resurrection. He will parlay that into the worship, the global worship of the Antichrist, the beast. And those who refuse will receive a mark that they will not be able to engage in commerce if they reject it. And if they do, they will be killed. Now, will people come to Christ during those days? They will. Will they pay for their faith with their lives? 
They will. And yet we can come to Christ by faith today and it is the age of grace. Today is the day of salvation. I hope you'll give your life to Jesus today. Let's pray together.